4: Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union, our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured, not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value.
0: Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio.
1: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb.
0: And I'm Joe McCormick, and we're back today to talk about getting in a box once again. uh, This is going to be the sequel to an episode that aired on Tuesday of this week. Uh, That previous one, we talked about cats getting in boxes, uh, cats being unable to resist the lure of a cardboard cube. And we discussed some biological facts about cats that could potentially uh, drive the box-seeking behavior including uh, natural behavioral preferences for hiding places, especially under stressful conditions. We talked about some studies about that, but then also things that uh, I hadn't thought about as much before, like thermoregulation, which seems to me to be uh, potentially a a big part of the explanation of why cats would seek, especially some kinds of boxes, the kinds that don't really afford anything like a hiding place. Uh, But we also talked about the more difficult-to-explain phenomenon of cats sitting on and in flat squares on the floor, as well as studies into cats and visual illusions. Today, we wanted to come back and look at the human side of this, humans uh, desiring to get into the box or get into
1: the square. Yeah, yeah, because your mind can't help but but go in this direction. Because, I mean, on one level, the same cardboard boxes that end up attracting the cat in a household— it well it'll attract children for sure I mean mm-hmm. if you've been around children or ever been a child you know the appeal of a box a big cardboard box there's so many things you can do with it cut some holes in it some windows some doors you've you got yourself uh, uh you know potentially a whole afternoon of uh, entertainment there
0: were you a fort builder as a
1: child I definitely was um I think yeah I think so but I don't remember having as I feel like they're far you know we live in an age now where they're just where cardboard boxes are just such a regular part of our life mm-hmm. and uh, as a kid i don't remember having as much access to cool giant cardboard boxes
0: uh, oh well i just
1: mean in general i mean building small enclosures
0: out of anything you could get oh, not yeah. just boxes because uh, we couch would build them. couch cushions yeah. of course a perfect building material for indoor forts but also i recall uh With a friend of mine, we spent one summer at least uh, building a fort out of sticks in the woods, Mm. just sort of like, you know, leaning them together to create a very rough sort of hut. I don't think it would have been functional as a living space because the roof would have leaked if it rained or anything like Mm -hmm. that. But it was still it felt very cool to have built something that you could get inside.
1: Yeah, yeah. And and so there's definitely the whole you know childhood dimension to it, and I guess we'll continue to touch a bit on that. But but also I I think as adults we can we can look to boxes and box like environment, and um, it's it's interesting to sort of engage with the degree to which we are drawn to these spaces or repulsed by these spaces, and and sometimes it's hard to figure out exactly how we feel about them. So uh, we should go ahead and state the obvious, and that is that we know on one level that can, that small confined spaces can be extremely detrimental to human well-being. Solitary confinement is a, a cruel and debilitating treatment. It's associated with a whole host of negative mental states. Yes,
0: clearly that's true. And uh, another thing uh, sort of uh, along the same lines is when I was trying to find good sources for today's episode for every, you know, one source you could find that has anything to do with a desire for small spaces. There are going to be a hundred about the hatred of small spaces, about claustrophobia right. and related, you know, mind states. Like obviously uh, being in a s- tight, confined space when you don't want to be there or against your will is a major preoccupation of, of humans. And it's really easy to get obsessed with this idea and really hate it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Though, at least for some, at least for a segment of the population, confined spaces of choice can certainly be comforting, at least in moderation. And if, and also, I should say, sometimes it might be more of a of a desire for the confined space than a reality of the confined space. Uh, and and I'll get a little bit more into, into what I mean by that uh, in, in just a bit. Um, but, you know, it should be noted that that human beings might not all think of box living as the ideal way to go. But but we also we do spend a lot of time living in boxes in the modern world. I mean, there's a high chance you're in a box space right now. Or if you are outside, perhaps you can see various box spaces from where you are. I mean, we are creatures of the box. Oh, you mean not just our houses, but also, say, uh, our cars, but also
0: boxes within the boxes. So within a house or within an office building where you work, you might have a little office or a little corner that's sort of made into a partially enclosed thing or a cubicle, if you're lucky mm-hmm. at
1: work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I mean, but even just talking about our houses and our rooms, um, and, and I I mean, I have to admit, like right now, I am in a a, a small closet. I'm in a confined mm-hmm. space that for the most part, feels pretty comfortable. I'm pretty, I'm pretty happy in this, this little confined space. I've, I've, I have my, my computer here. I have my mic. Uh, there's a, a bookshelf here that has some, some books, some games. There's some miniatures on it. All the, the coats in the house are helping to uh, pad out the sound. Uh-huh. So, um, you know, I, I definitely feel a certain, uh, attraction to, to a, a cozy confined space like this. I it's probably
0: for me conditioning because I'm used to recording in a studio that's sort of a dark padded area. When we were recording in the office, but even recording from home, I'm also in a box. I am mm-hmm. in the corner of a room, uh, sort of walled off by an acoustic partition wall that, that essentially creates a sort of shadowy corner where I can explore all the depraved thoughts that uh, that will eventually become part of this podcast.
1: <laughs> now we we recently discussed uh, diogenes in our episode on beans uh the fifth century bc cynic philosopher who is said to have lived in a tub or a large jar in the streets uh and and after we mentioned it, i had to look up some uh, interpretations of what this might have looked like uh, you know sometimes it is like it looks like a, a big stone barrel that he's living in yeah i think it was said to be maybe in the marketplace of athens mm-hmm. yeah so right right on the middle of everything um and ultimately, you know, even a tub, large jar, not that different from a box. And I should point out that there is a disorder that is known as Diogenes' syndrome though it's not tied to the idea of living in confined spaces, it's actually something of a misnomer as it's characterized. The syndrome is characterized by self-neglect, squalor, hoarding and social withdrawal. Diogenes, however, was a minimalist. And uh, and you, you don't see stories about him hoarding anything that would run against uh, the, the whole idea, nor was he socially withdrawn. No, no. I mean, you could Consider Diogenes
0: withdrawn in the sense that he made a point out of rejecting social convention. So he was sort of withdrawn from the social contract in a way, withdrawn from a buy-in with the rest of society and from expectations and norms. But he was not withdrawn in terms of his interactions with other people. He was very public and confrontational
1: about being not a part of your system, man. <laughs> Now, you might well wonder, well, if there is a psychological disorder associated with a desire to live inside a tub or a jar or a box, you know, what what would we call it? Perhaps not claustrophobia, but claustrophilia. And yes, there there is such a classification abnormal pleasure derived from being in a confined space.
0: I was looking this up, and at least I found, I don't know if you came across the same thing, that most of the sources using this term were using it with a kind of sexual connotation, that it was like a, a particular sexual obsession or fetish for being in confined spaces.
1: Um, I ran across a little of that. I mean, for the most part, I just – you don't see it discussed near as You're much right. as claustrophobia. Yeah. Um, and and I, I guess the thing is claustrophobia is something that can kick in and and be – a detriment to uh, you know your your uh, ability to uh, to live your life you know it could prevent you from say boarding a, a crowded train that you need to tr- need to board that sort of thing uh, whereas uh, claustrophilia um, I mean I guess it could get you into some into some trouble uh, but uh, but but yeah you just don't see as much literature about it. Um, you, you Yeah, you do see some stuff that, that seems to be going in a more erotic direction. Uh, but even some of that, I feel like it's getting into an area where you're not necessarily talking about like pure titillation. You're ultimately getting at this sort of this idea of enclosure and the comforting aspect of enclosure, even if it is discussed in an area that is like, um, you, know, you know, closer to um, more, uh, you know, erotic um, Considerations, but uh, for instance, there was one paper that I found, a Romanian paper, uh, recently published, titled "What if I didn't go out anymore," mm-hmm. uh, which which I think is a great great title by Rosella Valdri, and uh, I wasn't able to get access to to the full paper, uh, so I'll just read that the abstract here, which I think gets to the, the the heart of what the the author is discussing. Quote, One of the psychological reactions to the COVID nineteen lockdowns is psychic withdrawal. Claustrophilia. The author asks why this paradoxical reaction occurs, naming the death drive and fear of freedom. Now, you can
0: probably hear from some of the keywords at the end of this that this paper, uh, I looked at this, is actually published in a journal for psychoanalysis, which means we're in Freudian or Freudian adjacent territory. So I guess we don't know what the, I don't know, uh, empirical or modern scientific. Uh, validity of the explanation given in this paper would be, but I think the phenomenon it identifies as something I've seen expressed a good bit actually that there is a certain personality type and a certain way that some people have adapted to uh, to the COVID nineteen lockdowns that says eh, I don't know I don't know if I really need to leave my house anymore. I, there, <laughs> there there are certain aspects of ongoing quarantine that are kind of appealing. Uh, now, obviously, that's not going to be true of everybody. I you know, I personally, uh, ever since the two week mark after my second vaccination, I have been uh, thrilled at the prospect of, of getting out of the house more often uh, and especially being able to be around other other people more often. That's been really exciting to me, even though I think I'm overall a pretty introverted person. Like I like being by myself. I like being at home. Uh, you know, it's just there's sort of pent up demand that has built in my brain over the past year. But that's not there for everybody. Some people some people are like, yeah, I kind of like how things are for me.
1: Yeah. And I guess you you also have to realize you can divide it up in different ways. Like there are Mm -hmm. people that are that are that I'm sure all about like getting out back out there socially, seeing friends and family, but might be more of this school when it comes to work and say, actually, why should I ever leave my house to work? Like, can not I why not? Why do I need to be in an office like it's going to be I mean, it probably already is interesting in a lot of places where they're having to to reexamine the purpose of. The physical shared workspace mm-hmm. and then potentially have to make a case for it to, uh, mm-hmm. you know, to their employees or you know, whoever, um, whereas before it was just kind of a given. Well, of course, we all come and we share a, a, a single space to work. Um, but now they're potentially having to, put, to go out there and say, hey, everybody, why don't we come back together and work in one big space again and share a coffee maker? Ding, ding,
0: ding. You have got my number here. This, yeah, I've been really excited, uh, ever since getting vaccinated to see friends more often. I have no desire to, uh, to go back to a shared workspace, except, I mean, except that I, I mean, I, it's not that I don't like seeing my coworkers. I very much mm. do. I would like to see all of our coworkers again socially. I just don't want to have to work around other people. I'm so much more productive at home by myself where I can focus and not be distracted by a workplace.
1: Yeah. And so, yeah, I think it's going to break down differently for different people. But of course, uh, as sort of an introvert myself, I also I, I can also get a sense of this, too, where there is a lot of movement to open back up and, you know, being to get back out there. And after, a, a, you know, over a year of of doing the opposite, you know, it can it can feel a little much It can feel a little threatening, uh, you know, uh, mm-hmm. the, the idea of of going, you know, from. You know, from zero to 50 in too short of a, a time. And I think there is I have seen some some authors online talking about the idea of, you know, the importance even of finding like middle ground things you can do to sort of work back up mm-hmm. uh, to things like this. So, uh, you know, in, in, instead of like your first thing back out in the world shouldn't shouldn't be, uh, you know, going to 70 miles per hour, it should maybe, you know, do, go to 25 miles per hour, see what that feels like.
0: Maybe start with a small get together with other vaccinated friends instead of the monster truck show,
1: yeah yeah don't and um, immediately go to the monster truck show or the or the the mega concert or whatever it happens to be but uh but back just to the idea of of small tied and spaces, comfy places being appealing um i you know even though there are you know negative aspects again to such spaces uh Uh, I I have to admit to having felt this kind of draw to such spaces throughout my life, and sometimes it is an actual space that I'm inhabiting, like, you know, the closet here for the uh, for the podcasting. Other times, I do think it gets more into not the reality of the enclosed space, but just the idea of the enclosed space, the vision, the mental image of the enclosed space or a a physical representation of something that looks like a, a comfy enclosed environment.
0: Yeah, I mean, I wonder about the extent to which some of the appeal of tight enclosed spaces is um, at the conceptual level. It's not even necessarily like a a physical sensory thing, but something about the idea of being in a small space.
1: Yeah. So when I was a kid, I remember I would have... I I had this dream and either. I don't know if it was a recurring dream or just a very vivid dream that I had once that I've just Mm -hmm. always remembered. But it was it was in my my house at the time. And I found a sort of tunnel underneath the stairs and it was painted uh, and carpeted with wall to -wall, wall carpeting the same as the rest of the home. And the tunnel extended maybe eight feet back. Then made a sharp turn left. And it was a well lit environment in the dream, despite there you know there there not being any presence of lights that I remember but if you if you followed this this little tunnel back, uh, then you took that turn uh it would go for a little bit and then it would have another turn and it would uh, so there would be like a kind of a spiraling around, and then it would terminate in a cubicle space that was just large enough for me to ball up comfortably. Uh, but, either in this dream or in subsequent dreams, my body grew to where I could no longer comfortably venture into the heart of this this place uh, and then i, I ultimately couldn 't reach the heart of it at all. Wow, so you know without going crazy with dream interpretation because i i don 't know i 'm i'm i 'm kind of increasingly of the um the the night blender school of of dreams where none of it means anything mm-hmm. uh but There are are obvious parallels to make between this idea and anxieties of, say, leaving childhood, of growing up, uh, even a desire to return to the womb, uh, if you want to get real Freudian about it. Because, of course, this is central to the Freudian dual concepts of Eros and Thanatos. Thanatos, the god of death, personification of the death drive, and Eros, the god of love. And this is linked to a desire to return to the safety of the womb.
0: You know, without buying into the explanatory validity of Freudian concepts, I do think that there's something interesting about the idea of of the death drive as it relates to i don't know a, a sort a, a sort of desire for the mortification of the flesh that uh, that I want to link up to to a historical mm-hmm. example I have in just a minute
1: yeah and of course often of course, Freudian thought takes a decidedly sexual tone. Uh, in its uh, explorations, mm-hmm. but but even in a, like a non-sexual way, I feel like this this idea of returning to the womb, uh, I, I feel like it, it, it holds a certain amount of, of truthiness to it. it. It actually reminds me of a, a wonderful short bit in a recent uh, episode of uh, the, the John Oliver show where he talked about his desire to be an egg. Um, I mm-hmm. think the basic setup was like, this is the kind of thing you don't actually share with your partner, your, your desire to be an egg. And he goes on this extended uh, little monologue about the desire to be an egg and like the comforting, how comfortable it would be to not only like to be inside the egg, but to be the egg, to be the goo within the, uh, the, <laughs> the, the, the protective uh, uh, outer shell of the egg. Yeah, beautifully expressed, actually, to be in there alone with the
0: goop, just you in the goop, and knowing that whoever is around you, outside you, has to handle you very carefully.
1: <laughs> yeah, and so I feel like it got to the heart of this sort of often kind of abstract or subconscious thing I feel when I'm, especially if I'm looking at pictures of something or, or encountering a setting in a motion picture or a TV show. So especially tidy and cozy ship or train cabins. Um, for instance, I really enjoyed the first two seasons of the Snowpiercer TV show. And I think part of it is the way they depict some of the tight living spaces. I'm like, oh, I can I can imagine being in there. I can imagine curling up in that bed that's set into the wall. I haven't seen the show. I did see the movie
0: Snowpiercer, and I liked the movie, but there was absolutely nothing about it that was appealing whatsoever to me. Well, <laughs> there may be a difference in how the show is – the sets
1: are done. Well, I think I think the the main difference is, of course, the, the movie, which is also uh, really good. Mm-hmm. The, the movie only has so much time, and they've got to get to that bloody revolution. Right. Whereas the TV show just has more time to deal with, more space to lay out the world of the show and the world of the train. And therefore, you get those moments where you're like, oh, I can imagine being in there. Nobody's mm-hmm. dying in here right now. Uh, it seems fine. Now, apart from the
0: post-apocalyptic setting in general, I just do really love the idea of a little train compartment, a little private yeah. compartment in a train. It's, it's just lovely.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, now, another area, and this again goes to sci-fi, is when you encounter a good suspended animation chamber in science fiction, like the, like the, the stasis pods in Alien even i find for me anyway even when they give those pods kind of a darker tone you know like You're throwing up when you get out of it or you're weak when you get out of it or you're, you know, they're really leaning into the sort of glass casket, uh, Grimm's fairy tale, uh, you know, version of it. Uh, I often find them kind of relaxing to think about, maybe not at a, you know, uh, an actual conscious level where I'm like, oh, man, I wish I was in there. And Michael Fassbender was threatening me with experiments in my dreams. (laughs) But more like there's just something in me where I'm like, that looks comfy and safe and nice. I just want to be the mummy of Vladimir Lenin. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's that sort of thing. And again, it's like if I if I stop and I apply rational thought to it, it maybe doesn't sound so great, mm-hmm. uh you know, or even just apply it to the plot of the thing that it is uh, embedded within, but on some level it seems nice. And I feel like this this even uh, applies to uh to really nice coffins and caskets. I don't know if you've had this experience as well, but uh, if I'm like if I'm like checking out, uh, or it's it's not like if I'm at an actual funeral, but if I'm just thinking about caskets or caskets show up in a film, um, I'll sometimes look at them and be like, yeah, that that looks that looks pretty comfy. There's something attractive about that, and I realize part of it is that yeah, that's kind of the whole game of casket making and mm. casket salesmanship because it doesn't matter. Yeah. yeah, they're for the living. The living have to look at that and think, I would, I think I'd be comfortable in there. So. my you know deceased loved one they will be comfortable in there even though of course they're they're dead it doesn't matter to them where they are
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Uh, it makes me think of the scene in ed
0: wood where bella lugosi is coffin shopping and he's trying out (laughs) laying in all the coffins i can't even fold my arms
1: (laughs) yeah um I, i think it is also it is also compounded by the fact that even though i have never actually tried out a coffin Um, I, you see this in films all the time where someone is like that, you know, trying out a coffin or they're hiding in a coffin to get away from bad guys, or maybe they've even been buried alive. Uh, but live people find themselves in, in coffins all the time in cinema. Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples.
5: Inspired by guaranteed, straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a man. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at hypergig for details.
3: Snag a job is where America goes to hire. With the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers...
0: Now, as much as the appeal of a, a small, tight, cozy space like a box or a coffin might be rooted in some kind of uh, a conceptual abstraction, you know, pictures you're putting together in your head about what would be conceptually comforting uh, as a, as a space to occupy, I think there could also be some... Raw physical biological reality to this, because in the last episode we talked about research by Dodman and uh, and Grandin about the stress relieving potential of flank pressure on the bodies of mammals. The research we were looking at was from the 1980s, and it specifically was focused on uh, pigs. But it seems there is probably a broader mammalian response to having a gentle squeezing pressure on the side of the body that triggers a sort of stress relief response within the neuroendocrine system.
1: Yeah. Um, I think the the one most uh, famous example of this, and I think she we briefly mentioned her in the last one. I think she her she was a, an author in one of the papers you cited. Yeah, that's what I was just talking about. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, was this would of course be the uh, the hug machine invented by Temple Grandin as a therapeutic stress relieving device to resolve anxiety and sensory issues. And Temple Grandin, if you're not familiar, she's an animal
0: behaviorist, but has also written a lot and, and done stuff about the autism spectrum. Uh,
1: she right. herself is autistic. Yeah, I think uh, they, they made a movie several years back. And I think Claire Danes played her, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, I didn't know that. Uh, in the film. Yeah, I remember it being a, a fun film. I usually don't watch a lot of biopics, but I, I thought it was pretty good. Hmm. Um, so, uh, so, so, yeah. She invented it while attending college, and was inspired by the by the squeeze shoots used for cattle inoculation. So, cattle walks in the the walls; these kind of like you know these walls move in, kind of apply pressure from either side, and then you're able to um, inject the cattle, uh, the cow with the, the inoculation. Um, and so she she found it very useful, uh, at least for uh, you know, a long stretch in her life. And then subsequent studies have found that that deep pressure may have a calming effect, especially on persons with autism, especially if those persons have high anxiety levels.
0: This is actually described in a paper that Temple Grandin published in 1992 in the Journal of Child and Adolescent Psychopharmacology. Uh, and the paper was called. Calming effects of deep touch pressure in patients with autistic disorder, college students, and animals. Uh, and so just to read from Grandin's abstract here, quote, Many people with autistic disorder have problems with oversensitivity to both touch and sound. The author, an autistic person, developed a device that delivers deep touch pressure to help her learn to tolerate touching and to reduce anxiety and nervousness. The squeeze machine applies lateral, inwardly-directed pressure to both lateral aspects of a person's entire body by compressing the user between two foam-padded panels." Clinical observations and several studies suggest that deep touch pressure is therapeutically beneficial for both children with autistic disorder and probably children with attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. Only minor and occasional adverse effects have been noted. Uh, But then also, uh, Grandin notes that that there are data to show that this is not only effective at uh, calming people who have autism, but also at what is called non-referred college students, I think just the general population, Mm -hmm. and also points to studies, I think, uh, similar to and probably including the one we mentioned last time in uh, animal welfare – and so that there could be some significant clinical value to some kind of squeeze machine that provides this this deep sort of hug-like pressure with these foam pads almost swaddling the body.
1: Yeah, yeah. And to come back to what I said earlier about like some of the uh, sort of uh, the erotic treatments of uh, claustrophilia, uh, I, th- I think some of that, my, my sort of gut intuition here is that like some of that is ultimately getting back to this idea, you know, like um, – uh, the idea that if I somehow closely confine my body, if I like, you know, uh, you know, vacuum seal myself between two pieces of uh, vinyl or latex or something that like ultimately you're getting at the the comforting reality of the, um, uh, the similar to something that you might find in the, the hug machine as, as opposed to something that's just pure titillation. But I could be wrong on that. And of course, obviously, it's going to vary from from person to person. Uh, Nobody is going to have exactly the same reaction to the sort of stimuli we're describing here. Well, I guess one thing this
0: highlights is that it's not always totally easy to make a clear dividing line between what is erotic pleasure and what is other types of pleasure.
1: Yeah. Now, um, another uh, thing that you see marketed in similar ways to the hug machine is, of course, a weighted blanket, mm. um, which uh, – and I believe they even use these for dogs sometimes, but but humans especially, a weighted blanket uh, can be – comforting, Uh, even like a nice sleeping bag. I don't know, these sort of sarcophagus style sleeping bags. Um, I've always found certainly the idea of them comforting, but even yeah, yeah, on a camping trip, like being all zipped up and kind of mummified in one of those can feel feel pretty nice. Um, We'd also, we'd be remiss if we didn't mention uh, isolation tanks or, you know, flotation tanks in all of this, because that is, I mean, that's as close to what John Oliver was talking about with the the dream of being an egg is possible. Like you really do become the goop. You become the salty goop in there. The salty goop is you know generally at the you know the same temperature as your body, and you're cut off from the rest of uh, of of reality, and you're 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 left with the inner reality of, of of yourself. If only you could
0: take a nice tasty yolk in there with you, and then
1: just hang out for weeks. <laughs> I think that's one of the appeals of some of the sort of stasis chamber sci-fi that you get is that mm. sometimes you are in a goop in there, right? Oh, and you're yeah. like, "Oh man, look at the, the the goop just looks so nice and warm and comforting." Like when Neo
0: wakes up in the Matrix, I remember, yeah. so that scene's supposed to be liberating, but I remember, you know, when he he's pulling all the plugs out and he's got the goop all over him and everything, I always remember thinking in that scene like, "Oh, it lo- that looks like the worst like wake up early in the morning scene ever. <laughs> just don't you want to get back in that cozy goop bed?"
1: <laughs> yeah 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 uh, i mean it i mean ultimately i guess the the character uh cypher um you know he he had it figured out he's like get me back in that goop what do mm-hmm. i have to do can you get me back in that goop today
0: I'll, I'll betray any friends i don't care i just gotta get back in the egg
1: <laughs> <laughs> absolutely
0: anyway this subject of desiring to be squeezed into a small space or 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 in a box of some kind, it got me thinking about a subject that I've actually long found fascinating and and thought about especially over the last year. And that is the subject of people who were known as anchorites. These were people who in the medieval period would willingly enclose themselves permanently inside a tiny cell where they would usually spend the rest of their lives confined devoting their days to prayer and meditation, sometimes interacting with visitors, and passing food and waste only through small holes in the walls. There's actually a great article from 2018 from the British Library about the Anchoritic tradition. It's by a scholar named Dr. Mary Wellesley, who's a British Library affiliate, and it's called The Life of an Anchoress. An Anchoress is a term used for a female Anchorite. Uh, and also, I just want to give a shout out in general to the British Library and their various blogs and stuff, because they, they consistently put out a lot of fantastic content that features primary source materials front and center and quotes extensively from the primary sources. Mm-hmm. I love that they do that. that. That's a great site. But anyway, uh, so so back to Wellesley's article here. Uh, so the word anchorite and the word anchoress, these are from the Greek anachorio, which means to withdraw. Uh, So the cell in which an anchorite lived was known as their anchor hold. And so if you want to picture one of these places, you have to imagine a sort of tiny, maybe closet-sized stone house that's attached to the outside wall of a church. Wellesley estimates that the average anchor hold was probably no bigger than about 12 feet square. Uh, Some of them might have had two small rooms, but it seems most were just one tiny cell, one little room. Uh, And again, this cell would have had no door, so an anchorite or anchoress would have to have a support system in order to survive. And for this reason, it seems this was a pathway that was mostly reserved for wealthy people who could afford to pay one or two servants to spend basically the rest of their lives looking after them. So they would have to have a servant to bring them meals, to take away waste and garbage, etc., And so this exchange of materials would usually happen through one of three openings in the walls of the anchor hold. The most common design for an anchor hold seems to have been – it would be a cell built into the side of a church building, and it would have one window that opens into a kind of parlor, a tiny adjoining room – where material could be passed back and forth to the servant. So you could take away waste, you could bring them meals. And then there would be a second small window known as a squint, which would open into the church itself. And this would be so that the anchorite or anchoress could watch mass and receive communion from inside the church. And then there would be a third small window that would open to the outside world. And it was through this window that the occupant could receive visitors. Now, you might think that being walled up permanently inside a tiny cell for the rest of your life sounds pretty awful, and it certainly would be if it were against your will— but it seems that the Anchoritic life was actually quite desirable to lots of people in the late Middle Ages, uh, at least to people who could afford it. Uh, Wellesley notes some some figures that there were at least 100 known Anchorites and Anchoresses in England in the 12th century, and then 200 more from the 13th to the 15th centuries. She also notes an interesting gender divide that women outnumbered men consistently among the the anchoritic lifestyle. And in the 14th and 15th century, there were twice as many anchoresses as there were male anchorites. And in the 13th century, there were about three times as many. Hmm. Uh, And we'll come back to some possible reasons offered for the popularity of anchoritic life and the special popularity among women uh, in a bit. But first, I wanted to bring up how there's another thing that's interesting to me about the way that medieval sources talk about anchorites and anchoresses, that they are sometimes spoken of as if they were already dead, even while they're alive. Uh, So I wanted to set the scene by reading a passage from Wellesley's article, quote, At the moment of an anchoress's enclosure, a priest would recite the Office of the Dead, which was the set of prayers said at a person's funeral. This symbolized that the recluse was dead to the world. In fact, it seems that some recluses did not leave their cells even after they died. Archaeological excavations of some anchor holds have revealed the remains of people who presumably once lived there. In St. Anne's Church in Lewis, Sussex, the anchoress's grave has been positioned in exactly the place where she would have knelt daily to view the mass through the squint. So you you live in the anchor hold, you do mass through this tiny slot in the wall, and then you get buried peering
1: through the slot. Wow, it's... um... This is one that is you run into plenty of things in the historical record that are that are challenging for the the modern for for many modern uh humans to to understand, but this one yeah this one's this one's tough because on one hand it sounds like it's easier to just say, "Oh well, these were clearly zombies, they were zombies mm-hmm. and you cared about them, so you just kind of locked them in a hole next to the church and they need <laughs> – and then you but you but then you you realize of course that's 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 fantasy, so you try and sort of try to find parallels in the modern world, and like it's it's crazy to imagine this like at a at a, like a modern Christian church that mm-hmm. somebody could be could, you know like a wealthy church member could just say, "Hey, can I just live in the wall over here and yeah. then and then watch. Uh, you know church all the time and i'm just here and i'll just never leave and then you can just bury me in there like i guess the closest thing i can imagine is if you had like a really big sports fan and (laughs) they had what do they call those like the special rooms that you watch from um, oh like the skybox yeah like what if you had your own skybox? yeah (laughs) it was just for you just large enough for you to sit and eat wings and watch your football game um But you're just like, I'm never going to leave. I'm just going to stay there all the time. I'll watch all the football games. And when I die, you can just seal me up in there. I love church that much. Yeah. But of course, even that is, that does not feel like an accurate description of what's happening here.
0: No, I think there's something, so I think there's some stuff we'll get to in a minute that might help explain the psychology of this a little more. I mean, also, uh, like, uh, you can't... uh... Though, though it's kind of hard to understand, even from a modern religious perspective, even if you're a religious person today, usually your religious devotion wouldn't seem to take this form, right? You know, th- this level of like a total body sacrifice to to your religious uh, practice.
1: Well, like I think a lot of us can understand, say, the the desire or sort of the The ideal of, say, a monastic life, Mm -hmm. you know, I I find myself and maybe this is from, you know, just being a fan of like the name of the rose and all Mm -hmm. where, like, occasionally I'll be like, man, like, you know, background uh, thought that's not really tied to a lot of uh, practical thinking where it's kind Mm -hmm. of like, what if I was just a monk instead? Right. Like this is sort of ideal and roughly in your head that that would be easier. I would just live in a little space and I would have my duties. And, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, again, it's just like this this sort of uh, empty fantasy in the back of your head that doesn't actually match up with the reality of monastic life or what you actually want out of life. But it's Mm -hmm. kind of it's kind of in the background there enough to where I can I can be like, well, I, I understand the desire for some of that, but but not the living inside of a tomb. It's not a it's not a desire you have fully
0: formed, but you can kind of feel pulses of it every now and then. Yeah, exactly. I know that feeling. Um, anyway, so to go on with well- Wellesley's article here, more about, about the life of anchoresses in particular, uh, she cites a 13th century how-to guide for people who wish to become anchoresses, and this is called the uh, – and again, I, I'm not quite sure how to pronounce this, but is the, I think it is the Ancreen Wiese, uh, which is uh, spelled A-N-C-R-E-N-E, uh, and then the, the second word is W-I-S-S-E, the, the Ancreen Wies, I'll say. So, the Ancrene Wisse says, Admiring their own white hands is bad for many anchoresses who keep them too beautiful, such as those who have too little to do. They should scrape up the earth every day from the grave in which they will rot. Yikes. Wow. So, like, if your hands are too clean, that's cl- you're, you're being idle too much. So, you need to supplement your prayer and contemplation with scraping up the dirt. And, and should, I, I guess that further shows your devotion to God. But it reflects one of the major characteristics of the life of an anchoress, which is asceticism. The denial of worldly pleasures in favor of the pure life of contemplating and praying to God. And this was a common way of viewing holiness in medieval Europe, that the body is corrupt and sinful, and that the fleshly desires of the body must be denied in favor of the pure edification of the spirit. And so, of course, you could see this in all kinds of ways that medieval monks might uh, sort of punish themselves or deny their own bodily desires. But the Ancrine Weiss makes it clear that you shouldn't go overboard with asceticism. And Wellesley pulls a great quote here. Uh, so this is from the source. It says, No one should gird herself with any kind of belt except for her confessor's permission or wear any iron or hair or hedgehog skins or beat herself with these or with a lead whip or make herself bloody with holly or brambles.
1: So uh, the idea being deny the flesh, but don't punish
0: the flesh. Right. That seems maybe if you're punishing the flesh that much, I wonder if there was a kind of a suspicion that like you're maybe you're getting pleasure from going overboard to that extent, like you're going too far and perhaps there's like a horseshoe theory of pleasure and pain here, like you go too far into pain and you're actually maybe getting a kick out of it.
1: Well, it reminds me of, of again, the, the idea of the uh, isolation tank in, in the modern setting, mm-hmm. like the idea is that you don't pay as much attention to your body uh in order to contemplate other things yeah and and i feel like it's something similar is going on uh in these cells here but uh but but again it, yeah, if you're if the whole idea is to focus on god and not the body then yeah you shouldn't uh, i can see the argument for not finally manicuring your hands but also not spending too much time punishing your hands either
0: Now, another interesting thing that Wellesley gets into in this article is uh, she quotes from a primary text from the Middle Ages uh, called the I think it's called just book, but it is by an author named Marjorie Kemp. And uh, Wellesley mentions that this is one of the earliest known or maybe the earliest known autobiographical book written in English. And Kemp uh, visits a famous anchoress in this book known as Julian of Norwich, and the meeting is described as follows in Kemp's book. Quote, Then she was charged by our Lord to go to an anchoress in the same city, who was called Dame Julian. And so she did, and she showed her the grace that God had put in her soul, and many full speeches and conversations that our Lord spoke to her soul, and many wonderful revelations which she revealed to the anchoress in order to establish if there was any deception in them, for the anchoress was an expert in such things and could give good counsel on the matter." And Wellesley notes that this account by Kemp is interesting for several reasons. Uh, First of all, it's a picture of female friendship written by a woman, something that is not very common in the texts that survive to us today from the Middle Ages. But also, she notes that it shows a woman in a position of spiritual authority. She, you know, Julian of Norwich here is being sought for religious counsel at a time when the church itself was controlled entirely by men. And Wellesley claims that the reason Julian could be sought out so readily for spiritual advice, even though she was not part of the male authority structure of the church, was that she was an anchoress. And this raises an interesting contradiction. Despite the fact that anchoresses were walled up and unable to leave their cell for the rest of their lives, they were nevertheless very much an important part of the civic and ecclesiastical community, uh,
1: maybe more so than they would be if they were free to walk the streets. This is interesting, and it makes me wonder, uh, this might be a stretch, but maybe not so much given... um, Many of the things that are referenced by the author, but in uh, Red Dragon and in The Silence of the Lambs, mm-hmm. uh, we have two characters go to visit Hannibal Lecter, uh, not in a, a an interview room as seems to be typical of incar- with incarcerated individuals, both in reality and in other fictional treatments. Mm-hmm. But they go visit him at his cell, at his enclosure, and he's presented, of course, on one hand level. This is a monster. Uh, uh, the, in in his lair. But on the other hand, he is a wise individual who mm. is uh, segmented apart from society and is sought out for their wisdom and insight.
0: That's really good comparison. I hadn't thought about that. But I, yeah, I wonder if the Anchoritic tradition was somewhat in Thomas Harris's head
1: here. Might have been. I, I mean, Harris made allusions to a lot of uh, – to a number of historical elements and I think uh, even uh, you know, elements from, from Christian history. So – Perhaps. Well, I, I want to think more about this
0: role of the anchorite or the anchoress in the community and their their role as a source of spiritual authority. Uh, so the guidebooks for anchoresses uh, at, the, at the time advised them to be careful not to spend too much time socializing through the window to the outside world. For example, uh, this is again from the Ancrane Weiss. It says that you shouldn't take meals with visitors, quote, mm. This is showing too much friendliness because it goes against the nature of any form of religious life. And most of all, that an anchoress who is utterly dead to the world, one has often heard of the dead speaking with the living, but I have never found yet that they ate with the living. Mm. (laughs) So this is really interesting. It's like it contains this contradiction on one hand. The anchorite or the anchoress. The anchoress is dead to the world. She is of no value to the world. She's basically not a living human being anymore. And yet, she is a source of spiritual authority and insight, much in the same way that a message from beyond the grave, maybe to a person who's already gone to heaven, w- would be.
1: Yeah, yeah. Like they're almost like they're almost like they're half dead. That they already have a foot in the the, the world beyond. Yeah. And so despite these warnings of like, you know, you shouldn't
0: eat uh, if you're an anchoress, you shouldn't eat with visitors. That's just too friendly. It's clear that a good amount of interaction did take place through that window to the outside world. And in a way, the anchoress could become a a sort of hub for the communities, both spiritually and socially. And so I want to read another section from the Oncreen Weiss that is cited by Wellesley, quote, The anchoress is called an anchor and anchored under the church like an anchor under the side of a ship to hold the ship so that waves and storms do not capsize it. Just so all holy church, which is described as a ship, should anchor on the anchoress for her to hold it so that the devil's blasts, which are temptations, do not blow it over.
1: That's interesting. So it's the the idea that the, the anchoress is... Is providing uh, like a stabilizing element to the church or to the local faithful, to the the, the physical being, the spiritual being of the, the church itself?
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I think given some of these considerations, maybe it is less surprising how popular the anchoritic way of life was, right? That uh, that it despite being sort of dead to the world, you would also in a weird way be held up as a, a special source of wisdom or insight. And you might have an important symbolic role in as a kind of like protector of the, the church and the church community and, and somebody that people would seek out for advice. And it also seems that like, according to what Wellesley says here, that this was a way for, uh for women to have spiritual authority within the church that they wouldn't be able to have because like by say, entering the clergy, which they couldn't do. Mm -hmm. Now, I I was wondering what we have in the way of anchoresses describing their own feelings about their lifestyle in their own words, and there's actually very little uh, of that. Uh, So to read uh, a section from Wellesley on that, quote, the only text written by an anchoress to survive the period is Julian of Norwich's Revelations. All of the other texts about anchoritism were written by people advising those who had chosen or wished to choose the anchoritic way of life. In Julian's text, she gives away very little about her experience of being enclosed. At one point she writes, This place is prison. This life is penance. But we cannot be sure whether Julian was referring to her earthly life more broadly or the specific circumstances of her cell. Mm. Uh, And I found that passage really interesting, too, because... I wonder if the the physical enclosure of the anchoritic way of life takes on a special appeal if you already in a way view fleshly earthly life as itself a kind of prison or enclosure
1: yeah yeah you' sort of like a, an immediate physical uh, recreation of what you believe reality to be so anyway, that, that's all
0: bouncing around in my head about the the possible
1: psychology that would lead someone
0: to want to become an anchoress. But also, I just had to mention a couple of other details that, uh, that I came across that I thought were really great. This first one is another tidbit from Wellesley's article, and it's just a story uh, about a saint named St. Dunstan, who was an anchorite. Uh, and he was written about in a work by an 11th century monk named Osborne. Apparently, St. Dunstan would occupy himself with metalwork, uh, especially so he would do like work with gold while he was secluded in his cell. And uh, at one point, it is told in this in this life of St. Dunstan that the devil appeared to him and he's like, oh, I'm the devil. I'm going to get you. And Dunstan uh, defended himself by tweaking the devil's nose with a pair of hot metal tongs <laughs> that he had been
1: uh, using to do his metalworking with. So very good job, Dunstan. <laughs> well, you know that this um, th- this also makes me wonder about like the uh, uh, getting into sort of the the isolation tank area and also um uh, sensory deprivation in general like if you're pursuing this spiritual uh life within uh, the cell of the of the anchorite you, you know perhaps it ultimately aids that because you 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 set yourself off from so much sensory information. May, you know you're perhaps putting yourself in a position to have uh, one on ones with the devil. You know. Mm-hmm. Also, if you're engaging in metal work in there, because uh, yeah, I mean, uh, hopefully he wasn't using any um, you know anything that produced a lot of smoke or fumes or anything, because oh, that, that would uh, <laughs> surely these things were well ventilated.
0: <laughs> surely. That's a good point. I didn't think about that.
1: Well, I think it's something we don't often think about when we are engaging in sort of uh, half thought out uh, desires for enclosed spaces. We don't think about mm-hmm. the fact, oh, yeah, I need, I need to be able to breathe in there. Uh, yeah. You know, I want to have uh, at least some fresh oxygen finding me within this chamber.
0: Yeah. Or to allow the mercury fumes to escape. Mm-hmm. Uh, one last detail just that I thought was too good not to mention, because I, I, this was not from Wellesley's article. I just came across this in the British Library's collection summary for the Ancreen Weis, and it was a note uh, uh, describing the text and summarizing it, and it's listing many of the rules that are prescribed for the life of an anchoress. So to quote from the summary here, we learned that anchoresses were prohibited from eating meat, and that they were not allowed any accessories or items of clothing that were decorative rather than practical. Rings, brooches, patterned belts, and gloves were not allowed. They were also forbidden from keeping pets except
1: cats. Ah. Oh. Cat is all about that box life, so
0: yeah, tying back into the uh, to the original episode here. I'm not sure what the religious significance of of allowing a cat into the cell is, but uh, hmm. I thought that was interesting, especially compared to the sometime medieval associations between cats and witchcraft.
1: Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, there, there's there's probably more that could be said about that. I should also point out though. Hannibal Lecter was not permitted to have a cat. I do not remember him having a cat.
0: Oh, that would have gone poorly. (laughs) Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply.
5: Today I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm J.B. Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed, straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a guggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at slash hypergig for details.
3: Snag a job is where America goes to hire. With the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring.
1: Now, uh, certainly, living out the rest of your life in a box—that is the ultimate. That is, certainly we can't top that. But what I'm, I thought we might come back to the idea of what about just living part of your life inside of a box? What if you only slept inside of a box? And of course, uh, again, if we think about the fact that we do tend to to sleep in. Um, No cubicle or rectangular rooms yeah we all kind Mm. of sleep in boxes but how come we don't see much in the way of like actual sleeping boxes how come i don't actually crawl into a box to sleep at night good question i'd try it (laughs) uh well first of all i'd like to remind everyone uh that if you listen to our our episode or perhaps it was episodes on the invention of the bed uh box like beds actually go back quite a ways in history um Uh, In fact, um, some of the earliest examples of furniture within a domestic environment, as opposed to a tomb, uh, certainly includes um, a box-like bed. There's one from the Orkney Islands off the coast of Scotland from around 3100 to 2500 B.C.E., and it's essentially a stone, it's a stone bed box. It's like this, uh, you know, it's, it's not unlike the box that might be placed on the floor that your cat would climb into, except this was a, a stone box that you would, you know, fill then with some hides and whatnot to make it comfy, but you're still sleeping in a box.
0: Yeah, so I think uh, if I remember correctly, this would be sort of like imagining a stone bathtub that you would line with Know, soft material like straw or hides or things like that. And you yeah. get in the bathtub and and have the padding on the bottom.
1: Yeah, exactly. So to a certain extent, the, the idea of sleeping in a box is, I mean, that's just part of human history. And while, you know, a lot of our modern beds get away from a kind of boxy environment, and they're they, often they're more of an elevated uh, situation. Uh, there are some times uh, during which different humans certainly slept in boxes and box sleeping was was the fad Um, because certainly victorian curtain beds to a certain extent create a box that you sleep in Mm -hmm. and a part of part of this reality comes down to just uh, you know the desire to have a warm place to sleep you it, you you want to contain your body heat in the same way that you you know you would if you were just covered up with a bunch of blankets. But what if you also just use curtains to shut off the rest of the room? Okay. But then there's uh, there's the next step, and that is the idea of the box bed. Uh, so these were a kind of wooden wardrobe that you slept inside of. Um, they were often ornate uh, with an opening on one side um often this was a door so this is like a wooden door that that swung open or slid open uh though there are other versions of it that were more uh like they just had like a curtain and then there are also versions of it that were like part of the wall that were more more in line with the sort of uh sleeping environments you might see in a you know in in a confined uh you know like ship cabin sort of situation so you look in the cabinet where you keep the nice silver, and then you get jealous
0: of the silver and say, I want to be the nice silver. I want to be in there while I rest.
1: Yeah, exactly. Uh, if, if you look look these up, you can find a number of different examples of this. Um, uh, one website I was looking at, this was a website called The Vintage News, and uh, there is an author by the name of Louise uh, Flatley, who wrote about them in 2019, included a number of pictures. And this author stated that they probably started out in Brittany 600 years ago and subsequently spread throughout Europe. And yeah, it it was it seems to have largely been something like the curtain bed and that it was a good way to stay warm during cold nights. And it might have added security, either real security or sort of psychological security uh, for the protection of children during the night, you know, so you want the children to be safe. Well, let's have them sleep in this box. Uh, Let's actually have a door on the box and we can just shut them up in there.
0: It's interesting how the thermal value of the box bed uh, mirrors what we were talking about with cats that you know you surround yourself with a an at least partially insulated material to trap in your body heat.
1: Yeah. Now apparently a Scottish variant was popular in the 16th through 19th centuries. So if you look around, you can find examples of the Scottish box bed. And uh, I have to say, these look quite, quite comfy. These, these are not nearly as wardrobe-like as mm-hmm. uh, some of the other examples you'll find. These are more uh, just bed spaces set into the wall with a curtain that may be drawn. And uh, some of them look quite stylish, quite modern. Um, and then you'll, you tend to have uh, you know, more traditional uh, cabinets underneath them. And sometimes I think there's like a bench that folds out.
0: Yeah. They're kind of set into an alcove. It looks incredibly cozy to me. I want to get in one right now.
1: Yeah. Yeah. They, they look cool. I, I, and I, will, I would love to hear from anyone out there who sleeps in one of these. Uh, I mean, maybe there are some problems. I don't know. Like, I guess if you're sleeping two to a bed, somebody's going to be stuck up against the wall there yeah. and can't get out. But if that person really likes to be cozy, that's probably the prime place to be, right? You're all the way yeah. in the back. Right. Uh, as long as you don't have to go to the bathroom during the night. But then also, I guess you you have firm walls in place. So if you're too tall, uh, you know, you're just going to be bunched up in there. I don't know.
0: That is the thing is looking at this picture you've attached, uh, it looks very cozy, but it also looks relatively short. Yeah.
1: Now, this style apparently largely went out of style with the advent of 20th century heating. Uh, but they, but the, I've also read that they may be making a comeback, that uh, Carve uh, Scandinavian bed boxes seem to have made, made a return in recent years. I wasn't really able to find much in the way of evidence of this. Uh, I'm not doubting it, but I'm, I'm mostly just finding some interesting designs on Pinterest boards and whatnot and, you mm-hmm. know, and uh, antique uh, photos. Uh, so I'd love to hear from listeners on this as well. It's, you know, if you've been checking out... Um, you know, bed and breakfast throughout Europe or, or checking out uh, real estate. Are are box beds making a comeback? Are you finding people sleeping in wardrobes? Yeah. What, what are the Airbnb keywords for this? Because uh, to, on another level, it seems like you can get in trouble for sleeping in a box <laughs> because here in the United States, there was the story of cartoonist uh, Peter Berkowitz, who in order to survive San Francisco's housing market, which, you know, has has been insane for a while, moved into a wooden box in a friend's apartment, uh, paying just $400 a month. And I've seen pictures of this this box. So it's, I guess it's more in line with, kind of like a, an anchorite's cell in that it's like this elongated wooden box. It has a bed in there and just, you know, some room for some space. It's like this tiny compartment, except instead of being attached to a church, it's in your friend's living room. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, and so he ended up um, writing a piece about it for The Guardian and getting some press out of it, you know, because I think a lot of it, too, was just like, hey, uh, San Francisco housing market is insane. Look what I'm having to do to deal with it. And... Um, He he ended up getting busted for it because the idea was that these pods and boxes were said to violate local laws and create a fire hazard. Well, maybe, but but that kind of thing, I'd
0: always kind of wonder also if it's just like uh, the neighbors just don't like it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. It's hard to tell how much of that is, you know, how much of it is uh, is neighbors, how much of it is politics, etc. You know, he's making a stink about um, uh, about the, the housing market in the city. Uh, etc. But but I don't know there there you can also see that there could be some legitimate concerns about, say, ventilation Are you know, if you especially if you make your own uh, box to sleep and live in, um, you know, are, are you providing enough ventilation for this? Is, you know, is there is air getting in there? Um, like I think back to when we were recording together in a studio, mm-hmm. we were in a box within a room. But then they had a separate like air conditioning fan system set up to keep the air circulated through that little box that we were in. Sometimes it worked. Sometimes it worked. (laughs) Yeah. And sometimes there had been like five people in there ahead of us and it clearly was not working that hard. Oh, yeah. The days of 100% humidity inside the podcast studio. That was was a time. Now, now getting a little bit into this idea of box beds, but also coming back to the anchorites, um, I, I found a... A book by one Carrie Howey from 2007 titled Claustrophilia The Erotics of Enclosure in Medieval Literature and for anyone who wants a really deep contemplative dive on this topic I I think this would probably be the the book to check out Uh, because the author points to a kind of dual horror fascination with confined spaces not only during the middle ages but also in say modern cinema so they specifically bring up the 2002 david fincher uh, fincher film panic room as an example of this Hmm, i never saw that one oh, i was pretty good it's where jodie foster uh-huh. plays the uh, this woman and her and then she has a daughter i think and when the bandits come uh, led by uh, dwight yokum as the, as the lead villainous bandit. And he's quite good in it. Oh, weird. He's kind of a creeper. Um, so he, <laughs> he he plays the role well. Uh, so it becomes their place of um, of shelter, but also kind of a prison. So it does get into this dual uh, idea of like the panic room as being the place of safety, but also the place that you're trapped. Sorry, I'm still not getting over Dwight Yoakam. Yeah, I mean, I he's good it. in it. I don't know okay. that I've seen Dwight Yoakam in many uh, dramatic roles, but he's good in panic room. Uh, Anyway, Carrie Howey writes the following. Indeed, not only do fear and fascination go uh, hand in hand when enclosures are at stake. Fear is often alloyed with desire claustrophobia is, at bottom, in part a denied love of confinement. That is to say, it is always alloyed with claustrophilia. The Middle Ages had a particularly sensitive and sensory understanding of this. In the devotional text discussed below, it will become clear that enclosure was unavoidable for high medieval religious culture. It was not only secretly desired through repression, but openly courted, constructed, lived in. So I haven't read it, but I would imagine Howie's book probably touches on some of the themes of the anchoritic life as well. Yes, yes, I believe so. Now, outside of the Western world and getting more into the modern world, I feel like we have to at least mention capsule or pod hotels in Japan. I've never stayed in one of these, but I I think a lot of us have seen photos and photo galleries of such hotels. Um, Maybe you've seen them pop up in a documentary. Uh, And they they do fall into that category that I mentioned earlier, where it's like it's kind of like a sci-fi pod, Mm -hmm. uh, a stasis pod. And you can't help but look at it and think, oh, on some level, that's that's a desirable place to be. Yeah, totally. So these started in the late 70s I believe and they're they're notable for their low price, small space and they're apparently ideal for business travelers as well as people who've say been out on the town and they've become intoxicated and they can't return home. Uh, you know, across, say, you know, like, you know, the the Tokyo sprawl. And therefore, this is like a quick place you can go and bed down. But but yeah, there's something undeniably attractive about them. I was looking at various photo galleries of them. And I'm seeing like mountainous regions as being popular. I guess if you have you don't have a lot of real estate, and you potentially need like a high sleep density environment, it Mm -hmm. makes sense to have capsules or pods for people to sleep in. You know, I've often wondered
0: why they don't make airplanes where you can buy a uh, a horizontal sleeping pod instead of a seat. I, I would have to guess that it's just the geometry doesn't work out like they can't fit as many into the plane that way um, as they can vertical seats. But I don't know if you work in designing airplanes. Well, why is that? Why are there not planes like that?
1: I want to know. Well, you do see things like this, I think, in in first-class accommodations yeah. in, for certain airlines with, with long flights. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've, I've never experienced it myself, but I know they have things like that. You see, you occasionally see photographs of it. Uh, and maybe we have listeners out there who can attest to it. Uh, But speaking of of flights, I've also seen the capsule pod model at least argued as a solution for airports, uh, where especially if you have solo travelers who have like a long layover, Mm -hmm. you know, it it may not make sense to actually leave the airport, check into a hotel, uh, but you have that long layover. And what what are your choices? Just to sleep awkwardly in one of the the chairs uh, out there uh, while, while waiting or to curl up in the corner and hope nobody messes with you? What if you could pour yourself into a nice comfy pod and just um you know be the goo for 6 hours. Oh totally. I would be the goo. I I have slept on an airport floor. <laughs> I didn't like it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's not particularly desirable. Um oh, I should also mention there's there there is or was a capsule hotel in Pingheng, China. The Hang Space Capsule Hotel, and this one is also run by robots, so it's very sci-fi. Based on the the photographs I've seen, where you have these um, these capsule-like environments that you sleep in, but also there are zones where robots are bringing around. I think they're bringing around drinks. So, uh, I smell the setup of a sci-fi horror movie. N- nice <laughs> bottle budget. Uh, looks good. Yeah, capsule budget even. Yeah. I guess one more thing we should discuss here, and there's there's not a lot of hard information about this because these are mostly just designs. I don't think anyone actually has one of these. But at least back as far as 2015, various videos and animations depicting earthquake-proof beds were making the rounds. Uh, do you remember these, Joe? Maybe Vaguely. They were they were popular. You saw like Gizmodo articles about it. Uh, mm-hmm. And so I saw an article on The Verge about it. And you, you even saw like Stephen Colbert and various like late late night talk show hosts covering it because it's just so weirdly comforting, but also horrific to look at. Um, I, I want to quote James Vincent's write up from The Verge he, he, that he nicely summarizes. Quote, Earthquakes humanity's oldest foe right up there with snakes fire and other humans when it comes to things that will definitely probably kill you someday which is why you need one of these terrifying earthquake proof beds in the event of a quake your conspicuously massive four poster will simply swallow you up whole letting you get back to sleeping while the world itself shatters around you
0: Oh man, I love that, especially because that's like blatantly false. That earthquakes are one of <laughs> humanity's <laughs> oldest foes. Like an earthquake is really not very dangerous at all until you are in a built city,
1: right? Right. Prior to the construction of of uh, of cities and, and larger buildings, that's where the the true danger uh, enters yeah. the scenario. Uh, now, this the the, the one that um, that Vincent is specifically referring to here, I think, is one that had a really neat. Um, Need animation to guide it uh where you had essentially a bed that has a trap door in it so earthquake occurs sets off the sensor the bed does a trap door effect and you and whoever is sleeping on the bed just fall into like a pit and then it seals up behind you and supposedly there's like water and supplies in there and and it's implied <laughs> you that <laughs> you never wake up that you just like you, you just wake up the next morning oh i guess there was an earthquake in the night because now i'm in the comfortable darkness of my bed's belly now I'm an anchorite for
0: the next uh, seventeen days, or until we <laughs> run out of water.
1: Yeah. Now there have been various versions of this. I think some of them are, are have been kind of attributed to the to the same inventor. Uh, there's a Chinese inventor by the name of Wing Wing Z uh, g- called the uh, the Metro Farm Bed. That um, in its earlier stages just seems like a a bed with high protective arms that doesn't look that weird at all and looks actually kind of nice. Mm-hmm. Um, but then there are versions of, of, of their design that also involve moving doors, wings, etc i 've seen some variations of the of a so-called earthquake proof bed that essentially looks like like sleeping on top of a box, and then that box swallows you uh, to protect you i 've also seen some where the bed itself doesn 't drop you, but like big uh, metal fingers come out from under the bed and cover you to protect you from earthquake debris.
0: I'm surprised that so many of these have these moving parts. It would seem to me, I mean, I'm no expert, but I would guess the best kind of earthquake proofing you could have on a bed would just be to give the bed a reinforced roof.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't seem like you need the added complexity and potential danger of having doors that close and catch yeah. limbs that, you know, the, or, or requirements that you would need to maintain a particular sleeping, uh, posture in order to avoid being <laughs> decapitated by your bed, that sort of thing.
0: Uh, I, but I want to be fair. Maybe, maybe there's stuff I'm not getting about this.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and ultimately these are concepts, you know, um, mm clearly inventors are still feeling out the possibilities because again i come back to my my own um inner world and on one level yes this looks terrifying it it looks reminiscent of the scene where freddy krueger reaches up through the bed and pulls somebody down into the bed that's johnny depp oh yeah that was that was that was uh, johnny depp wasn't it
0: and then the bed just like vomits eighty
1: three thousand gallons of blood onto the ceiling yeah for like 15 minutes it felt like um So on one level, yes, it feels like that. But on the other level, it's like, what if my bed could hug me? What if my bed could could become my egg? And in that idea, especially in the wake of a potential threat like an earthquake, Mm -hmm. it it does sound kind of nice. Bed is goop. All right. Well, we're going to ha- go ahead and close it out here. We're going to go ahead and press the panic button on our, um, our, our swallowing bed mm-hmm. and, uh, <laughs> and seal ourselves off for this episode. But we'd love to hear from everyone out there. What are your feelings and thoughts uh, on enclosed spaces for sleeping or living or otherwise? Have you stayed in a Japanese uh, pod hotel or some of these examples and say Italy or Switzerland uh, report back? What was it like? Was it great? Was it not so great? Was it a mix of the two? Did you feel comfortable? Did you feel like the goop? Uh, we'd love to know all about that. Um, you know, the, these various beds, box beds, have you slept in one? Are they making a comeback? All of it's fair game. Are you an anchorite? If so, let us know. If so, what are you doing listening to podcasts? I feel like that should not be allowed. Unless you were a podcast anchorite, where your <laughs> sole responsibility is to listen to as many podcasts as possible with your podcat, uh, who's also there. Um <laughs> in order to uh, attain spiritual enlightenment.
0: Oh, uh, also, I want to hear about uh, people's experiments with their cats. I don't know if we mentioned this at the end of the last episode. Mm-hmm. Maybe we did. But uh, but yeah, yeah, yeah. If, you, if you've uh, put out a square to see if your cat will sit on it, that kind of thing, yeah, feel free. Write us about it.
1: Yeah, I think there's already some action on that. We either received a listener mail or somebody shared it on the discussion module, which is the, the Facebook page uh, where people who – dig the show, uh, you know, hang out and share links and whatnot.
0: I think so far we got one yay and one nay on on Facebook. One person saying, yeah, put down the the tape
1: square, cat got right in it. Another person saying the cat doesn't even go anywhere near it. (laughs) Yeah, keep it coming. We need more data. In the meantime, if you would like to check out other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, you'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. And wherever that happens to be, we just ask that you rate, review, and subscribe. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson.
0: If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stuff to stufftoblowyourmind.com.
4: Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.